The air was icy as Robert Peace stepped out of the pharmacy where he worked, his breath visible in the frigid December air. He pulled his coat tighter around him, glad that his co-worker had borrowed it earlier and warmed it up for him. Peace had plans to celebrate his mother's birthday later that evening, but first he needed to discuss a job opportunity with a contractor. As he made his way to John Wayne Gacy's vehicle, Peace had no idea that he was about to cross paths with the monster. Gacy was known in the community as a contractor and a clown, but what most people didn't know was that he was also a sadistic killer who preyed on young men and boys. In this episode of Ominous Obsessions, we'll take a closer look at the events leading up to Robert Peace's disappearance and the twisted mind of John Wayne Gacy. We'll explore the horrifying details of Gacy's murders and how he managed to evade capture for so long. And we'll examine the trial and prosecution of this notorious serial killer. But a word of caution, the details we'll be discussing are gruesome and may be unsettling for some listeners. Take a hit and buckle up for a terrifying ride as we unravel the chilling details of Robert Peace's story and the other innocent victims of John Wayne Gacy's brutal reign of terror. I'm Tiffany, and welcome back to Ominous Obsessions. Robert Peast was a 15-year-old high school student at Maine West High School. On December 11, 1978, he was working as a stock boy in the local Nissan pharmacy owned by Phil Torf. When Peast failed to return, his family filed a missing person report with the Des Plaines police. The owner of the store named Gacy as the contractor Peast had most likely talked to about a job. Lieutenant Joseph Kozenchak, whose son attended Maine West High School with Peast, chose to investigate Gacy further. Having spoken with Peace's mother on the morning of December 12th, Kozenchak became convinced that Peace had not run away from home. His mother explained the family's plan to celebrate her birthday that night, and the details of Peace's disappearance were suspicious. A routine check of Gacy's criminal background revealed that he had an outstanding battery charge against him in Chicago and had served a prison sentence in Iowa for the sodomy of a 15-year-old boy. Jack and two Des Plaines police officers visited Gacy at his home the following evening. Gacy indicated he had seen two youths working at the pharmacy and that he had asked one of them, whom he believed to be pieced, whether there were any remodeling materials behind the store. He was adamant, however, that he had not offered Peace a job and had only returned to the pharmacy shortly after 8 p.m. as he had left his appointment book at the store. Gacy promised to come to the station later that evening to make a statement confirming this, indicating he was unable to do so at that moment as his uncle had just died. When questioned as to how soon he could come to the police, police station, he responded with, quote, You guys are very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead? End quote. And it's comments like these that really had my blood boiling while I was researching this case. As if brutally murdering many people wasn't enough, now he's criticizing others for their, quote, lack of respect for the dead. Gacy's a fucking piece of shit. But wait, there's more. At 3.20 a.m., Gacy arrived at the police station covered in mud, claiming he had been involved in a car accident. I'll tell you later how he got in this accident. <laughs> On returning to the police station later that day, Gacy denied any involvement in Peace's disappearance and repeated that he had not offered him a job. When asked why he had returned to the pharmacy, Gacy reiterated that he had done so in response to a phone call from Torf informing him he had left his appointment book at the store. Detectives had already spoken with Torf, who denied calling Gacy. At the request of detectives, Gacy prepared a written statement detailing his movements on December 11th. Suspecting Gacy might be holding peace against his will at his house, Des Plains police obtained a warrant to search Gacy's home on December 13th. The search of Gacy's property revealed several suspicious items, including several police badges and a 6mm starter pistol inside an office drawer, a syringe and a hypodermic needle inside a cabinet in Gacy's bathroom, and investigators also found handcuffs, several books on homosexuality and pedophilia, seven pornographic films, capsules of amyl nitrate, and an 18-inch dildo in Gacy's bedroom. 
a 39-inch 2x4 with two holes drilled into each end, bottles, uh, bottles of Valium and Atropine, and several driver's license were found in the northwest bedroom. A blue hooded parka was found atop a toolbox inside the laundry room, and underwear too small to fit AC was located inside a bathroom closet. In the northwest bedroom, investigators found a class of 1975 Maine West High School ring engraved with the initials J.A.S. Investigators also recovered a Nissan Pharmacy photo receipt from a trash can, alongside a 36-inch section of nylon rope. The Des Plaines Police confiscated Gacy's Oldsmobile and other PDM work vehicles. Police assigned two alternate two-man surveillance teams to monitor Gacy on a rotational 12-hour basis as they continued their investigation into his background and potential involvement in Peace's disappearance. These surveillance teams consisted of officers Mike Albrecht and David Hockmeister, as well as Ronald Robinson and Robert Schultz. The following day, investigators received a phone call from Michael Rossi, who informed the investigators of Gregory Godzik's disappearance and the fact that another PDM employee, Charles Hatula, had been found drowned in an Illinois river earlier that year. On December 15th, Des Plaines investigators obtained further details of Gacy's battery charge, learning that the complainant, Jeffrey Rignall, had reported that Gacy had lured him into his car, then chloroformed, raped, and tortured him before dumping him. He was left with severe chest and facial burns and rectal bleeding in Lincoln Park the following morning. In an interview with Gacy's former wife the same day, they learned of the disappearance of John Butkovich. Also on this day, the Maine West High School ring was traced to a John Allen Syke. An interview with Syke's mother revealed that several items from her son's apartment also were missing, including a Motorola TV set. By December 16th, Gacy was becoming affable with the surveillance detectives, regularly inviting them to join him for meals in restaurants and occasionally for drinks in bars or at his home. He repeatedly denied that he had anything to do with Peace's disappearance and accused the officers of harassing him because of his political connections or because of his recreational drug use. Knowing these officers were unlikely to arrest him on anything trivial, he taunted them by flouting traffic laws and succeeded in losing his pursuers more than once. That afternoon, Cram consented to a police interview, in which he described Gacy's hard-working lifestyle and open-minded attitude about sex between men. Cram also revealed that because of his poor timekeeping, Gacy had once, once given him a watch, explaining that he had got it, quote, from a dead person. Investigators conducted a formal interview of Rossi on December 17th. He informed them Gacy had sold Syke's vehicle to him, explaining that he had bought the car from Syke because he needed money to move to California. A further examination of Gacy's Oldsmobile was conducted on this date. In the course of examining the trunk of the car, investigators discovered a small cluster of fibers they suspected to be human hair. That evening, officers conducted a test using three trained German Shepherd search dogs to determine whether Peace had been present in any of Gacy's vehicles. One dog approached Gacy's Oldsmobile and lay on the passenger seat in what the dog handler informed investigators was a death reaction, indicating Peace's body had been present in the vehicle. That evening, Gacy invited detectives Albrecht and Hockmeister to a restaurant for a meal. In the early hours of December 18th, he invited them into another restaurant where, over breakfast, he talked of his business, his marriages, and his activities as a registered clown. By December 18th, Gacy was beginning to display signs of strain from the constant surveillance. He was unshaven, looked tired, appeared anxious, and was drinking heavily. That afternoon, he drove to his lawyer's office to prepare a $750,000 civil suit against the Des Plaines police demanding that they cease their surveillance. The same day, the serial number of the Nissan Pharmacy photo receipt found in Gacy's kitchen was traced to 17-year-old Kimberly Byers, a colleague of Peace at Nissan Pharmacy. Byers admitted when contacted in person the following day that she had worn Peace's coat on December 11th to shield herself from the cold as she worked near the door at the cash register. She had placed the receipt in the Parker Park parka pocket just before she gave the coat to Peace as he left the store, claiming a contractor wanted to speak with him. This statement contradicted Gacy's previous statements that he had no contact with Robert Peace on the evening of December 11th. 
The same evening, Rossi was interviewed a second time. This time, he was more cooperative. He informed detectives that in the summer of 1977, at Gacy's behest, he had spread ten bags of lime in the crawl space of Gacy's house. On December 19th, investigators began compiling evidence for a second search warrant for Gacy's house. The same day, Gacy's lawyers filed the civil suit against the Des Plaines police. The hearing for the suit was scheduled for December 22nd. That afternoon, Gacy invited the surveillance detectives inside his house again. As Officer Robinson distracted Gacy with conversation, Officer Schultz walked into Gacy's bedroom in an unsuccessful attempt to write down the serial number of the Motorola TV set they suspected belonged to John Syke. While flushing Gacy's toilet, the officer noticed a smell he suspected could be that of rotting corpses emanating from a heating duct. The officers who had searched Gacy's house previously had failed to notice this, as the house had been cold. Investigators interviewed both Cram and Rossi on December 20th. Rossi had agreed to be interviewed in relation to his possible links with John Syke, as well as the disappearance of Robert Peast. When questioned by Kozinchak as to where he believed Gacy had concealed Peace's body, Rossi replied Gacy may have placed the body in the crawl space, adding that he thought Sykes' car was stolen. Rossi agreed to submit to a polygraph test. He denied any involvement in Peace's disappearance, also denying any knowledge of his whereabouts. He soon refused to continue the questioning, and Rossi's erratic and inconsistent responses to questions while attached to the polygraph machine rendered Kozinchak unable to render a definite opinion as to the truthfulness of his answers. Rossi did, however, further discuss the trench digging he did in the crawl space and remarked on Gacy's insistence that he not deviate from where he was instructed to dig. Cram informed investigators of Gacy's attempt to rape him in 1976. He stated that after he and Gacy had returned to his house after the December 13th search of his property, Gacy had turned pale after seeing a clot of mud on the carpet, which he had suspected had come from the crawlspace. Cram said Gacy had grabbed a flashlight and immediately entered the crawlspace to look for evidence of digging. When asked whether he had been to the crawlspace, Cram replied that he had been once asked by Gacy to spread lime down there and he had also dug trenches, which Gacy explained were for drainage pipes. Cram stated that these trenches were two foot wide, six foot long, and two foot deep, the same size of graves. On the evening of December 20th, Gacy drove to his lawyer's office in Park Ridge to attend a scheduled meeting assumably to discuss the progress of his civil suit. Upon his arrival, Gacy appeared anxious and disheveled and immediately asked for an alcoholic drink. Sam Amarante fetched a bottle of Seagram's whiskey from his car. Gacy immediately drank two cupfuls of whiskey. Amarante, by the stage dubious of Gacy's repeated and incessant claims of innocence, then asked Gacy what he had to discuss with them, placing a copy of the Daily Herald upon his desk and stating, quote, you said you had something new to tell me, something important, end quote. Gacy picked up the newspaper from Amaranti's desk, pointed to the front page article covering the disappearance of Robert Peace, and said, quote, This boy is dead. He's dead. He's in a river, end quote. Gacy then proceeded to give a rambling confession that ran into the early hours of the following morning. He began by informing Amarante and Stevens that he had quote, been the judge, jury, and executioner of many, many people, end quote, and that he now wanted to be the same for himself. The details of Peace's disappearance are as follows. On the afternoon of December 11th, 1978, Gacy visited the Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines to discuss a potential remodeling deal with the store owner Phil Torf. While he was within earshot of 15-year-old part-time employee Robert Peast, Gacy mentioned his firm often hired teenage boys at a starting wage of $5 per hour, almost double the pay Peast earned at the pharmacy. Shortly after Gacy left the pharmacy, Peast's mother arrived at the store to drive her son home so that the family could celebrate her birthday together. Peast asked his mother to wait, adding that some contractor wanted to talk to him about a job. He left the store at 9 p.m., promising to return shortly. Peace was murdered shortly after 10 p.m. at Gacy's home. Gacy later stated that at his house, he gave Peace a soft drink before asking whether there was anything he wouldn't do for the right price, to which Peace replied that he did not mind working hard. 
In response, Gacy stated that good money could be earned by hustling, although Peace was dismissive. Gacy then duped Peace into donning handcuffs before saying, quote, I'm going to rape you and you can't do anything about it, end quote, as Peace began weeping. Gacy's subsequent statements regarding the events to unfold varied, although in one of his initial statements, he claimed that Peace had failed to resist as he removed the boy's trousers. He also stated that he had placed the rope around Peace's neck, and the boy was crying, scared. Gacy admitted to having received a phone call from a business acquaintance as Peace lay dying, suffocating on his bedroom floor. Gacy said he had murdered at least 30 victims, most of whom he had buried in his crawlspace, and had disposed of five other bodies in the Des Plaines River. Gacy dismissed his victims as male prostitutes, hustlers, and liars, to whom he gave the rope trick, adding he sometimes awoke to find dead, strangled kids on his floor with their hands cuffed behind their back. He buried their bodies in his crawlspace as he believed they were his property. As a result of the alcohol he had consumed, Gacy fell asleep midway through his confession. Amarante immediately arranged a psychiatric appointment for Gacy at 9 a.m. that morning. On awakening several hours later, Gacy shook his head when informed by Amarante he had confessed to killing approximately 30 people, saying, quote, Well, I can't think about this right now. I've got things to do, quote, end quote. Ignoring his lawyer's advice regarding his scheduled appointment, Gacy left their office to attend to the needs of his business. Gacy later recollected his memories, or recollected his memories of his final day of freedom as being hazy, adding he knew his arrest was inevitable and that he intended to visit his friends and say his final farewells. After leaving his lawyer's office, Gacy drove to a gas station where, in the course of filling his rental car, he handed a small bag of cannabis to the attendant, who immediately handed the bag to the surveillance officers, adding that Gacy had told him, quote, the end is coming for me, these are guys are going to kill me, end quote. Gacy then drove to the home of a fellow contractor and friend, Ronald Road. Gacy hugged Road before bursting into tears and saying, quote, I've been a bad boy. I killed 30 people, give or take a few, end quote. Gacy left Road and drove to Cram's home to meet with Cram and Rosie. As he drove along the expressway, the surveillance officers noted he was holding a rosary to his chin, praying while he drove. After talking with Cram and Rossi, Gacy had Cram drive him to a scheduled meeting with lawyer Leroy Stevens on the northwest side. As Gacy spoke with Stevens, Cram informed the surveillance officers that Gacy had told him and Rossi that he had or confessed to over 30 murders with his lawyers the previous evening. Gacy then had Cram drive him to uh, Mary Hill Cemetery, where his father was buried. As Gacy drove to various locations that morning, police outlined the formal draft of their second search warrant, specifically to search for the body of Robert Peace in the crawlspace. On hearing from the surveillance detectives that, in light of his erratic behavior, Gacy might be about to commit suicide, police decided to arrest him on a charge of possession and distribution of cannabis in order to hold him in custody, as a formal request for a second search warrant was pres uh, presented. At 4.30 p.m. on December 21st, the eve of the hearing of Gacy's civil suit, Judge Marvin J. Peters granted the request for a second search warrant. After police informed Gacy of their intentions to search his crawlspace for the body of Peast, Gacy denied that the teenager was buried there, but confessed to having killed in self-defense a young man whose body was buried under his garage. Armed with a signed search warrant, police and evidence technicians drove to Gacy's home. On their arrival, officers found Gacy had unplugged his sump pump, flooding the crawlspace with water. To clear it, they simply replaced the plug and waited for the water to drain. After it had done so, evidence technician Daniel Genty entered the 28 by 38 foot crawl space, crawled to the southwest area, and began digging. Within minutes, he had uncovered putrefied flesh and a human arm bone below the dirt where he had seen worms. Genty immediately shouted to the investigators that he could charge Gacy with murder, adding, quote, I think this place is full of kids, end quote. A police uh, photographer then dug in the northeast corner of the crawl space, uncovering a patella. The two then began digging in the southeast corner, uncovering two lower leg bones. The victims were too decomposed to be pieced. As the body discovered in the northeast corner was later unearthed, a crime scene technician discovered the skull of a second victim alongside this body. Later excavations of this feet of the, sectum, or the second victim revealed a further skull beneath the body. Because of this, technicians returned to the trench where the first body was unearthed, discovering the ribcage of a fourth victim within the crawlspace, confirming the scale of the murders. 
after being informed that the police had found human remains in his crawlspace and that he would now face murder charges, Gacy told officers he wanted to clear the air, adding he had known his arrest was inevitable since his previous evening, which he had spent on the lawyer's uh, couch at his lawyer's office. In the early morning hours of December 22nd and in the presence of his lawyers, Gacy provided a formal statement in which he confessed to murdering approximately 30 young males, all of whom he claimed had entered his house willingly. Some victims were referred to by name, but Gacy claimed not to know or remember most of the names. He claimed all were teenage male runaways or male prostitutes, the majority of whom he had buried in his crawlspace. Gacy claimed to have dug only five of the victims' graves in this location and had his employees dig the remaining trenches so that he would have uh, graves available. One victim was from Round Lake. Another had been a Michigan native. When shown a driver's license issued to a Robert Hassan, which had been found on his property, Gacy claimed not to know him but admitted that his license had been in the possession of one of his victims. In January 1979, he had planned to conceal the corpses even further by covering the entire crawl space with concrete. When questioned specifically about peace, Gacy confessed to luring him into his house and strangling him on the evening of December 11th. He also admitted to having slept alongside Peace's body that evening, before disposing of the corpse in the Des Plaines River in the early hours of December 13th. On his way to the police station, he had been in a minor traffic accident after disposing of Peace. His vehicle had slid off an ice-covered road and had to be towed from its location. This is why he was late and covered in mud when he arrived at the station, because he was literally disposing of Peace's body before going to talk to the cops. Accompanied by police and his lawyers, Gacy was driven to the I-55 bridge on December 23rd to pinpoint the pre precise location where he confessed, or confessed to have thrown the body of Robert Peace and four other victims into the Des Plaines River. Gacy was then taken to his house and instructed to march, uh, mark his garage floor with orange spray paint to show where he had buried the individual he supposedly killed in self-defense, which we all know is bullshit, and this victim was John Butkovich. To assist officers in their search for the victims buried beneath his house, during his confession, Gacy drew a rough diagram of his basement on a phone message sheet to indicate where the bodies were buried. Twenty-six bodies were unearthed from Gacy's crawlspace over the next six weeks. Or, yeah, over the next week, sorry. <laughs> 26 bodies were unearthed from Gacy's crawlspace over the next week. Three more were unearthed elsewhere on his property. Cook County Medical Examiner Robert Stein supervised the exhumations. Each victim unearthed from the crawlspace was placed in a body bag, which was placed near the front door awaiting transportation to the mortuary. The crawlspace was marked in sections, and each body was given an identifying number. The first body removed from the crawlspace was assigned a marker denoting the victim as body number one. Gacy had buried this victim in the northeast section of the crawlspace, directly beneath the room he had used as his office. No cause of death could be determined. The body of John Bukovich was labeled as body number two. Here's what really happened to him. On July 31st, 1975, John Bukovich, Bukovich an 18-year-old PDM employee from Lombard, disappeared. Butkovich's car was found parked near the corner of Sheridan and Lawrence, with his jacket and wallet inside and the keys still in the ignition. The day before his disappearance, Butkovich had confronted Gacy over two weeks' outstanding back pay. Butkovich's father uh, called Gacy, who claimed he was happy to help search for his son, but was sorry Butkovich had run away. When questioned by police, Gacy said Butkovich and two friends had arrived at his house demanding the overdue pay but they had reached a compromise and all three had left. Over the following three years, Butkovich's parents called police more than 100 times, urging them to investigate Gacy further. Gacy later admitted to encountering Butkovich exiting his car at the corner of West Lawrence Avenue, waving to attract his attention. According to Gacy, Butkovich approached his car, stating, I want to talk to you. Gacy invited Butkovich in his car, then invited him back to his house, intending to settle the issue of his overdue wages. At his home, Gacy offered Bukovic a drink, then conned him into allowing his wrist to be cuffed behind his back. Gacy later confessed to having sat on the kid's chest for a while before he strangled him. He stowed Bukovic's body in his garage, intending to bury the body later in the crawl space. When Gacy's family returned earlier than expected, Gacy buried Butkovich's body under the concrete floor of the tool room extension of his garage, in an empty space where he had initially intended to dig a drain tile. 
On December 23rd, investigators returned to unearth the three corpses which had been buried in the same trench as Body 1. Body 3 was buried in the crawl space, directly above Body 4. Alongside them, Body 5 was buried directly beneath Body 1. The victim was buried 36 inches below the surface of the soil, indicating he was the first to be buried in this common grave. The search for victims was postponed temporarily over Christmas. Four more bodies were unearthed on December 26. Bodies number 6 and 7 were buried in the same grave. Body 7 was found in a fetal position. A cloth gag was found in the mouth, leading investigators to conclude this victim most likely died of asphyxiation. Body 8 was found with the tourniquet, tourniquet used to strangle him still knotted around his neck. Body 9 was found beneath a layer of concrete and was found to have several stab wounds to the ribs and sternum, suggesting he was Gacy's first victim. Gacy's first known murder occurred on January 3, 1972. According to Gacy's later account, following a family party on the evening of January 2nd, he decided to drive to the Civic Center in the Loop to view a display of ice sculptures in the early hours of the following morning. He then lured a 16-year-old named Timothy Jack McCoy from Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal into his car. McCoy was returning from a Christmas vacation in Eaton Rapids, Michigan, to his father's home in Omaha, Nebraska, and he informed Gacy in their initial conversation his connecting bus to Nebraska was not due until noon. Gacy took McCoy on a sightseeing tour of Chicago and then drove him to his house with the promise that he could spend the remainder of the night and be driven back to the station in time to catch his bus. Prior to McCoy's identification, he was known simply as the Greyhound busboy. Gacy claimed he woke early the following morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom doorway with a kitchen knife in his hand. He then jumped from his bed and McCoy raised both arms in a gesture of surrender, tilting the knife upward and accidentally cutting Gacy's forearm. Gacy twisted the knife from McCoy's wrist, banged his head against the bedroom wall, kicked him against the wall or the wardrobe, uh, kicked him against the wardrobe and walked towards him. McCoy then kicked Gacy in the stomach, doubling him over. Gacy then grabbed McCoy, shouting, Motherfucker, I'll kill you. He then wrestled McCoy to the floor and stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he straddled him. As McCoy lay dying, Gacy claimed he washed the knife in his bathroom, then went to his kitchen and saw an open carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced bacon on the kitchen table. McCoy had also set the table for two. He had walked into Gacy's room to wake him for breakfast while absentmindedly carrying the kitchen knife in his hand. Gacy buried McCoy in his crawl space and later covered his grave with a layer of concrete. In an interview several years after his arrest, Gacy said that immediately after killing McCoy, he felt totally drained. However, as he listened to McCoy gasping for air, he orgasmed. He told investigators, quote, That's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill, end quote. On December 27th, eight more bodies were discovered. Body 10 was buried face upwards, parallel to the wall of the crawl space directly beneath the entrance to Gacy's home. Body 11 and 12 were both found face downwards with a ligature around their neck and both were buried beside each other in the center of the crawl space, directly beneath the hallway. Body 13th was found beneath the spare bedroom. Body 14 and 15 were recovered from a common grave diagonal to body 10. Both 14 and 15 were found with their head and upper torsos inside separate plastic bags. Body 16 was found close to body 13, although in a separate trench further north of the south wall. This victim was found with a cloth rag lodged deep in his throat, causing him to die of suffocation. The 17th victim was found with a ligature around his neck. The following day, four more bodies were exhumed. Body 19 was buried directly beneath Gacy's master bedroom, perpendicular to body 18, which was located beneath the spare bedroom, and found with a ligature around the neck. Body 20 was buried in the northwest corner of the crawl space, perpendicular to body 19. By December 29th, six more bodies were unearthed. Body 22, 23, 24, and 26 were buried in a common grave located beneath Gacy's kitchen and laundry room, with body 25 located beneath Gacy's bathroom. Body 22 was found directly beneath Gacy's kitchen with a section of cloth-like material lodged in his throat. Two socks were recovered from the pelvic region. This victim was buried directly beneath body 21. The bones of victim 23 and 24 were commingled together, and a section of cloth was found inside the mouth or inside the mouth of body 24 and 26. Body 25 was found beneath Gacy's bathroom with a section of cloth lodged in the throat. The final victim recovered from the crawlspace was also found beneath the bathroom, buried 10 inches below the surface of the soil. 
This victim was found to have a section of cloth lodged deep in his throat. Operations were suspended due to the Chicago blizzard of 1979, but resumed in March despite Gacy's insistence that all buried victims had been found. On March 9th, Body 28 was found wrapped within several dry cleaner and plastic garbage bags and buried beneath the patio approximately 15 feet from the bar- barbecue pit in Gacy's backyard. On March 16th, bo- Body Number 25, er, <laughs> on March 16th, Body 29 was found beneath the dining room floor. All the victims discovered at 8213 West Summerdale were in an advanced state of decomposition. Dental records and x-ray charts helped Stein identify the remains. 23 victims were identified via dental records, with two further victims identified via skeletal trauma. These identifications were also supported with the personal artifacts found in Gacy's house. The head and upper torso of several bodies unearthed beneath Gacy's property have been placed into plastic bags. Several were also found with ropes still around their necks. In some cases, bodies were found with foreign objects such as prescription bottles lodged into their pelvic regions, the position of which indicated the items had been thrust into the victim's anus. Stein concluded 12 victims recovered from Gacy's property died not of strangulation but of asphyxiation. Gacy's vacant house was demolished in April of 1979, but investigators were still searching for Robert Peace. They decided to focus their efforts along the river where Gacy said he had dumped him. A victim found six miles downstream from the I-55 bridge on June 30th was not initially connected to Gacy. In January 1979, this victim was identified using fingerprint records and a distinctive tattoo on his left bicep reading Tim Lee. He was named as Timothy O'Rourke. An autopsy was unable to rule out strangulation as the cause of death. Following Gacy's arrest, this was when authorities connected O'Rourke's case to Gacy and he became victim 31. Victim number 32 was Frank Lingdinging. His cause of death was certified at autopsy as suffocation through his own underwear being lodged down his throat, plugging his airway and effectively causing him to drown in his own vomit. His body was identified via fingerprint records and connected to Gacy through a bond slip issued to Lingdinging the day before his death found at Gacy's home. On December 28th, one further body linked to Gacy was found one mile from the I-55 bridge. This victim was identified as James Mazzara, who Gacy confessed to having murdered shortly after Thanksgiving. Mazzara had been strangled with a ligature. And finally, on April 9, 1979, a man walking along a Grundy County towpath discovered a decomposed body entangled in exposed roots on the edge of the De Plains River. The body was identified via dental records as being that of Robert Peace the same evening. A subsequent autopsy revealed that three wads of paper-like material had been shoved down his throat while he was still alive, causing him to suffocate. With all the evidence against him, John Wayne Gacy could finally be taken to trial. Gacy was brought to trial on February 6, 1980, and charged with 33 murders. He was tried in Cook County, Illinois, before Judge Louis Garipo. Due to extensive press coverage in Cook County, the jury was selected from Rockford. At the request of his defense counsel, Gacy spent over 300 hours with doctors at the Menard Correctional Center in Chester in the year before his trial. He underwent a variety of psychological tests before a panel of psychiatrists to determine whether he was mentally competent to stand trial. Gacy attempted to convince the doctors that he had multiple personality disorder. He claimed to have four personalities, the hard-working, civic-minded contractor, the clown, the active politician, and a policeman called Jack Hanley, whom he referred to as Bad Jack. When Gacy had confessed to police, he claimed to be relaying the crimes of Jack, who detested homosexuality and who viewed male prostitutes as weak, stupid, and degraded scum. His lawyers opted to have Gacy plead not guilty by reason of insanity to the, ch- uh, to the charges against him. In his opening statement to the jury, one of G- Gacy's defense attorneys, Robert Moda, remarked, The insanity defense has been looked upon as an escape, a defense of last resort. The defense of insanity is valid, and it is the only defense that we could use here, because that is where the truth lies. Because if Gacy is normal, then our concept of normality is totally distorted. Presenting Gacy as a Jekyll and Hyde character, the defense produced several psychiatric experts who had examined Gacy. 
Three psychiatric experts at Gacy's trial testified they found him to be a paranoid schizophrenic with multiple personalities. The prosecutors presented the case that Gacy was sane and in full control of his actions. To support this contention, they produced several witnesses to testify to the premeditation of Gacy's actions and the efforts he took to escape detection. Those doctors refuted the defense doctor's claims of multiple personalities and insanity. Graham and Rossi testified that Gacy had made them dig drainage trenches and spread bags of lime in his crawlspace. Both said Gacy looked periodically into the crawlspace to ensure that they and other employees uh, that they supervised did not deviate from the precise location he had marked. On February 18th, Robert Stein testified that all the bodies recovered from Gacy's property were markedly decomposed and putrefied skeletalized remains, and that all of the autopsies he performed, 13 victims had died of asphyxiation, 6 of ligature strangulation, 1 of multiple stab wounds to the chest, and 10 in undetermined ways. When Gacy's defense team suggested that all 33 deaths were caused by accidental asphyxiation, Stein called this highly improbable. They were trying to convince the jury that the choking was consensual. Jeffrey Rignall testified on behalf of the defense on February 21st. Recounting his ordeal, Rignall wept repeatedly while describing Gacy's torture of him in March of 1978. During specific cross-examination relating to the torture, Rignall vomited and was excused from further testimony. On February 29th, Donald Voorhees, whom Gacy sexually assaulted in 1967 testified to his ordeal at Gacy's hands and his subsequent attempts to dissuade him from testifying by paying another youth to spray mace in his face and beat him. Voorhees felt unable to testify, but did briefly attempt to do so before being asked to step down. Robert Donnelly testified the week after Voorhees, recounting his ordeal at Gacy's hands in December of 1977. Donnelly was visibly distressed as he recalled the abuse he endured and came close to breaking down several times. As Donnelly testified, Gacy repeatedly laughed at him, but Donnelly finished his testimony. During the fifth week of the trial, Gacy wrote a personal letter to Judge Garipo requesting a mistrial for reasons including that he did not approve of his lawyer's insanity plea, that his lawyers had not allowed him to take the witness stand, and that his defense had not called enough medical witness, that he, uh, also that the police were lying with regard to verbal statements he allegedly made to detectives after his arrest, and that in any event the statements were self-serving for use by the prosecution. Judge Garipo addressed Gacy's letter by informing him that both counsels had not been denied the opportunity or funds to summon expert witnesses to testify, and that, under the law, he had the choice whether he wished to testify, and was free to indicate as much to the judge if he wished to do so. On March 11th, final arguments by both prosecution and defense attorneys began. They concluded the following day. Prosecuting attorney Terry Sullivan spoke first, outlining Gacy's history of abusing youths, the testimony of his efforts to avoid detection and describing his surviving victims, Voorhees and Donnelly, as living dead, referring to Gacy as the worst of all murderers. Sullivan stated that John Gacy had accounted for more human devastation than many earthly catastrophes, but one must tremble. I tremble when thinking about just how close he came to getting away with it all. End quote. After the state's four-hour closing, counsel Sam Amarante spoke for the defense. Amarante argued against the testimony delivered by the doctors who had testified for the prosecution, repeatedly citing the testimony of the four psychiatrists and psychologists who had testified on behalf of the defense. Amarante also accused Sullivan of scarcely referring to the evidence presented throughout the trial in his own closing argument, and of arousing hatred against his client. Amarante then urged the jury to put aside any prejudice they held against his client and asked they deliver a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity adding that Gacy was a danger to both himself and to others, and that studying his psychology and behavior would be a benefit to science. On the morning of March 12th, William Kunkel argued, uh, continued to argue for the prosecution. Kunkel referred to the defense's contention of insanity as a sham, arguing that the facts of the case demonstrated Gacy's ability to think logically and control his actions. Kunkel also referred to the testimony of one of the doctors who had examined Gacy in 1968 and concluded that he was antisocial personality, capable of committing crimes without remorse and unlikely to benefit from social or psychiatric treatment, stating that had the recommendations of this doctor been heeded, Gacy would not have been freed. 
At the close of his argument, Kunkel removed photos of Gacy's 22 identified victims from a display board and asked the jury not to show sympathy, but to show justice. Kunkel then asked the jury to show the same sympathy this man showed when he took these lives and put them there, before throwing the stack of photos into the opening of the trap door from Gacy's crawlspace, which had been introduced as evidence and was on display in the courtroom. After Kunkel had finished his testimony, the jury retired to consider their verdict. The jury deliberated for one hour and 50 minutes before announcing they had reached their verdicts. Gacy was found guilty of 33 charges of murder. He was also found guilty of sexual assault and taking indecent liberties with the child, both convictions in reference to Robert Peast. At the same time, his conviction for 33 murders was the most for which any person in United States history had been convicted. In the sentencing phase of the trial, the jury deliberated for more than two hours before sentencing Gacy to death for each murder committed after the Illinois Statute on Capital Punishment came into effect on June 1977. His execution was set for June 2, 1980. On being sentenced, Gacy was transferred to the Menard Correctional Center, where he remained incarcerated on death row for 14 years. Before his trial, Gacy initiated contact with WLS TV journalist Russ Ewig, to whom he granted numerous interviews between 1979 and 1981. Ewig later collaborated with author Tim Cahill to publish the book Buried Dreams. The information Gacy divulged to Ewig regarding the circumstances of his first murder would prove instrumental in establishing the identity of his first victim. After his incarceration, Gacy read numerous law books and filed voluminous motions and appeals, although he did not prevail in any of them. His appeals related to issues such as the validity of the first search warrant granted to the Des Plaines police on December 13, 1978, and his objection to his lawyer's insanity plea defense at his trial. Gacy also contended that, although he had some knowledge of five of the murders, uh, the other 28 murders had been committed by employees who had keys to his house while he was away on business trips. In mid-1984, the Supreme Court of Illinois upheld Gacy's conviction and ordered his execution by lethal injection on November 14th. Gacy filed an appeal against this decision, which was denied by the Supreme Court of the United States on March 4th, 1985. The following year, Gacy filed a further post-convictions petition, seeking a new trial. His then-defense lawyer, Richard Kling, argued that Gacy had been provided ineffective legal counsel at his 1980 trial. This post-conviction petition was dismissed on September 11, 1986. Gacy appealed the 1985 decision that he be executed. The Illinois Supreme Court upheld his conviction on September 29, 1988, setting a new execution date of January 11, 1989. After the U.S. Supreme Court denied Gacy's final appeal in October 1993, the Illinois Supreme Court formally set an execution date for May 10, 1994. On the morning of May 9, 1994, Gacy was transferred from the Menard Correctional Center to Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill to be executed. That afternoon, he was allowed a private picnic on the prison grounds with his family. For his last meal, Gacy ordered a bucket of KFC, a dozen fried shrimp, french fries, fresh strawberries, and a Diet Coke. That evening, he observed prayer with a Catholic priest from whom he received the last rites, before being escorted to the Stateville Execution Chamber to receive a lethal injection. Before the execution began, the chemicals used to affect the execution solidified unexpectedly, clogging the IV tube used to administer the chemicals into Gacy's arm, which complicated the procedure. Blinds covering the window through which witnesses observed the execution were drawn. The execution team replaced the clogged tube, and after ten minutes, the blinds were reopened and the execution resumed. The entire procedure took 18 minutes. Anesthesiologists blamed the problem on the prison officials' inexperience at conducting an execution, saying that had correct execution procedures been followed, the complication would never have been or would have never occurred. This error apparently led to Illinois adopting an alternative method of lethal injection. According to published reports, Gacy was a diagnosed psychopath who did not express any remorse for his crimes. His final statement to his lawyer before his execution was that killing him would not compensate for the loss of others, and that the state was murdering him. His final spoken words were reported to be kiss my ass, although prosecutors William Kunkel stated in 2020 that these words were spoken to a prison official and were not part of any official statement prior to Gacy's execution. In the hours leading up to Gacy's execution, a crowd estimated at over 1,000 gathered outside the correctional center. 
A vocal majority were in favor of the execution, although a small number of anti-death penalty protesters were also present. Some of those in favor of the execution wore t-shirts hearkening to Gacy's previous community service as a clown, and bearing satirical slogans such as, No Tears for the Clown. The anti-death penalty protesters present observed a silent candlelight vigil. After Gacy's death was confirmed at 12.58 a.m. on May 10, 1994, his brain was removed. It's in the possession of Helen Morrison, a witness for the defense at Gacy's trial, who has interviewed Gacy and other serial killers in an attempt to isolate common personality traits of violent sociopaths. Following this, his body was cremated. All right, so let's recap. Gacy murdered at least 33 young men and boys and buried 26 of them in the crawl space of his house. His victims included people he knew and random individuals lured from Chicago's Greyhound bus station, Bughouse Square, or simply off the streets with the promise of a job at PDM, an offer or a drink, and or drugs for money uh, or sex. Uh, Gacy usually lured a lone victim to his house, although on more than one occasion, Gacy also had what he called doubles, two victims killed in the same evening. Inside Gacy's home, his usual modus operandi was supply a youth with drink, drugs, or generally gain his trust. He would then produce a pair of handcuffs to show a magic trick, sometimes as part of a clowning routine. He typically cuffed his own hands behind his back. Then he would release himself with the key which he had hid between his fingers. He would then put the cuffs on his victims to have them try and escape them. Having restrained his victim, Gacy proceeded to rape and torture his captive. He frequently began by sitting on or straddling himself above his victim's chest before forcing the victim to perform oral sex. Gacy then inflicted acts of torture, including burning with cigars and violating them with objects such as dildos and prescription bottles after he had sodomized his captive. To immobilize his captive's legs before engaging in acts of torture, Gacy frequently strapped their ankles to a two-by-four with handcuffs attached at each end, an act inspired by the Houston mass murders. He also verbally taunted many of his victims throughout their continued abuse. Uh, he was also known to have dragged or forced several victims to crawl into his bathroom, where he partly drowned them in the bathtub before repeatedly reviving them, enabling him to uh, continue his prolonged assault. Gacy typically murdered his victims by placing a rope tourniquet around their neck before progressively tightening the rope with a hammer handle. He referred to this act as the rope trick, frequently informing his captive, this is the last trick. In at least one instance, he read part of Psalm 23 as he tightened the rope around his victim's neck. Occasionally, the victim had convulsed for an hour or two before dying. Although several victims died by asphyxiation from cloth gags stuffed deep in their throat. Except for his two final victims, all were murdered between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. After death, Gacy usually stored the victim's bodies under his bed for up to 24 hours before burying his victim in the crawl space, where he periodically poured quicklime to hasten the decomposition of his victims. Some victims' bodies were taken to his garage and embalmed prior to their burial. Now that we know more about what this dickhead was really up to in his downtime, let's go back and fill in the gaps, exposing what Gacy tried for so long to hide. Gacy admitted that 1975 was when he began to increase the frequency of his excursions for sex with young males, which also happened to be the same year that Gacy expanded his business. He often referred to these jaunts as cruising, Gacy committed most of his murders between 1976 and 1978, as he largely lived alone following his divorce. He later referred to these as his cruising years. Although Gacy remained gregarious and civic-minded, several neighbors noticed erratic changes in his behavior after his 1976 divorce. This included seeing him keeping company with young males, hearing his car arrive or depart in the early hours of the morning, or seeing lights in his home switch on and off in the early hours. One neighbor later recollected that for several years, the sounds of muffled high-pitched screaming, shouting, and crying had repeatedly awakened her and her son in the early morning hours. She identified the sounds as emanating from a house adjacent to theirs on West Summerdale Avenue. In 1976, one month after his divorce was finalized, Gacy abducted and murdered 18-year-old Daryl Sampson. He was last seen alive in Chicago on April 6, 1976. Gacy buried him under 
the dining room with a section of cloth lodged in his throat. Five weeks later, on the afternoon of May 14th, 15-year-old Randall Reffitt disappeared shortly after returning to his uptown home from a dental appointment. He was last seen by his grandmother later that afternoon. Hours after Reffitt was last seen by his family, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton vanished as he walked home from his sister's apartment. He and Reffitt were close acquaintances. Both were buried together in the crawl space, and investigators believe the two were murdered the same evening. On June 3rd, Gacy killed a 17-year-old Lakeview teenager named Michael Bonin. He disappeared while traveling from Chicago to Waukegan. Gacy tra uh, strangled Bonin with a ligature and buried him under the spare bedroom. Ten days later, Gacy murdered a 16-year-old uptown youth named William Carroll and buried him in a common grave in the crawl space. Carroll seems to have been the first of four victims known to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6th, 1976. Three were between 16 and 17 years old, and one unidentified murder victim appears to have been an adult. On August 5th, a 16-year-old Minnesota youth named James Hakenson is last known to have phoned his family, possibly from Gacy's home. Hakenson died of suffocation. His body was buried in the crawl space beneath the body of a 17-year-old Binsville youth named Rick Johnston, who was last seen alive on August 6th. Gacy is thought to have murdered two further unidentified males between August and October of 1976. On October 24th, Gacy abducted and killed teenage friends Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. The two were last seen outside a restaurant on Clark Street in Chicago. Two days later, a 19-year-old construction worker, William Bundy, disappeared after informing his family he was to attend a party. Bundy died of, a suff of suffocation, and Gacy buried the body beneath his master bedroom. He had apparently worked for Gacy as well. Between November and December 1976, Gacy murdered a 21-year-old named Francis Alexander. His last contact with his family was a phone call to his mother made sometime in November. Alexander was buried in the crawl space beneath uh, the room Gacy used as his office. In December 1976, another PDM employee, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, disappeared. His girlfriend last saw him outside her house after he had driven her home following a date. Godzik had worked for PDM for less than three weeks before he disappeared. He had informed his family that Gacy had him dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles in his crawl space. Godzik's car was later found abandoned in Niles. His parents and older sister Eugenia contacted Gacy about Godzik's disappearance. Gacy claimed that he had run away from home, having indicated before that he wished to do so. Gacy also claimed to have received an answering mach machine message from Godzik shortly after he disappeared. When asked if he could play back the message to Godzik's parents, Gacy said he had erased it. On January 20, 1977, Gacy lured 19-year-old John Syke to his house on the pretext of buying his Plymouth satellite. He later confessed to strangling Syke in his spare bedroom, claiming Rossi was asleep in the house the following morning. Gacy later sold the car to Rossi for $300. Two months later, on March 15th, a 20-year-old Michigan native named John Prestige disappeared. Prestige was last seen leaving near Northside Restaurant. He was buried in the crawl space above the body of Francis Alexander. Shortly before his disappearance, Prestige had mentioned he had obtained work with a local contractor. Gacy murdered one additional unidentified youth and buried him in the crawl space in the spring or early summer of 1977. The exact same time of the murder, or the exact time of the murder is unknown. On July 5th, Gacy killed a 19-year-old from Crystal Lake, Matthew Bowman. Bowman's mother last saw him at a suburban train station. He had intended to travel to Harwood Heights for a scheduled court appointment regarding an unpaid parking ticket. The following month, Rossi was arrested for stealing gasoline while driving Sykes' car. The gas station attendant noted the license plate and police traced the car to Gacy's house. When questioned, Gacy told officers that uh, had, or Syke had sold the car to him in February, saying he needed money to leave town. A check of the VIN confirmed the car had belonged to Syke. The police did not pursue the matter further, although they did inform Syke's mother that her son had sold his car. By the end of 1977, it is known Gacy had murdered six more young men between the ages of 16 and 21. The first of these victims was 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, the son of a Chicago police surgeon, last seen alive on September 15th. Gilroy lived just four blocks from Gacy's house, and he was murdered and buried in the crawlspace. On September 12th, Gacy had flown to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to supervise a remodeling project, and he did not return to Chicago until September 16th. Because Gacy is known to have been in another state at the time Gilroy was last seen, 
This fact supports the idea that Gacy had accomplices in several homicides. Ten days after Gilroy was last seen, 19-year-old former U.S. Marine John Mowry disappeared after leaving his mother's house to walk to his apartment. Gacy strangled Mowry and buried his body beneath the master bedroom. On October 17th, 21-year-old Minnesota native Russell Nelson disappeared. He was last seen outside a Chicago bar. Nelson was looking for contracting work, and Gacy murdered him and buried him beneath the guest bedroom. Less than four weeks later, Gacy murdered a 16-year-old Kalamazoo teenager named Robert Winch and buried him in the crawl space. On November 18th, 20-year-old father of one, Tommy Bowling, disappeared after leaving a Chicago bar. Three weeks after the murder of Tommy Bowling, on December 9th, a 19-year-old U.S. Marine, David Talsma, disappeared after informing his mother he was to attend a rock concert in Hammond, Indiana. Gacy strangled Talsma with a ligature and buried him in the crawlspace close to the body of John Mallory. On December 30th, Gacy abducted 19-year-old college student Robert Donnelly from a Chicago bus stop at gunpoint. Gacy drove him to his home, where he raped, tortured, and repeatedly dunked Donnelly's head into a bathtub until he passed out. Gacy taunted him with statements such as, Aren't we playing fun games tonight? Donnelly later testified at Gacy's trial that he was in such pain that he asked Gacy to kill him. Gacy replied, I'm getting round to it. And after several hours, Gacy drove Donnelly to his workplace and released him, warning him that if he complained to the police, they would not believe him. Donnelly reported the assault, and police questioned Gacy on January 6, 1978. Gacy admitted to having had a sex-slave relationship with Donnelly, but insisted everything was consensual, adding that he didn't pay the kid the money he promised him. The police believed him and filed no charges. The following month, Gacy killed 19-year-old William Kindred, who disappeared on February 16th after telling his fiancé, who knew Gacy, that he was to spend the evening in a bar. Kindred was the final victim Gacy buried in his crawlspace. On March 21st, Gacy lured 26-year-old Jeffrey Rignall into his car. Shortly after Rignall entered the car, Gacy chloroformed him and drove him to his house, where his arms and head were restrained in a pillory device affixed to the ceiling and his feet locked into another device. Gacy explained to Rignall he had complete control over him and that he intended to do whatever he wanted to him, when he wanted, and how he wanted. He then raped and tortured Rignall with various instruments, including lit candles and whips, and repeatedly chloroformed him into unconsciousness. Gacy then drove Rignall to Chicago's Lincoln Park, where he was dumped, unconscious but alive. Rignall managed to stagger to his girlfriend's apartment. Police were informed of the assault, but did not investigate Gacy. Rignall was able to recall, through the haze of that night, the Oldsmobile, the Kennedy Expressway, and particular side streets. He and two friends staked out the Cumberland exit of the expressway, and in April, Rignall saw the Oldsmobile, which he and his friends followed to 8213 West Somerdale. Police obtained an arrest warrant, and Gacy was arrested on July 15th. He faced trial for assault and battery against Rignall at the time of his arrest. By mid-1978, the crawlspace had no room for further bodies. Gacy later confessed to police that he considered stowing bodies in his attic initially, but he had been worried about complications arising from leakage. Therefore, he chose to dispose of his victims off the I-55 bridge in the Des Plaines River. Gacy stated he had thrown five bodies into the river in 1978, one of which he believed had landed on a passing barge. Only four bodies were ever found. The first known victim thrown from the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River was 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke. He was murdered in mid-June after leaving his Dover Street apartment to purchase cigarettes. Shortly before his disappearance, O'Rourke had told his roommate a contractor on the northwest side had offered him a job. On November 4th, Gacy killed 19-year-old Frank Lingdenin. He was last seen alive uh, by his father walking along Foster Avenue. His naked body was found close to an inlet in the Des Plaines River by two duck hunters in Shannon on November 12th. On November 24th, a 20-year-old Elmwood Park resident, James Mazzara, disappeared after sharing Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Mazzara had informed his sister the day prior to his disappearance that he was working in the construction industry and doing all right. He was last seen alive walking in the direction of Bughouse Square, carrying a suitcase. Only 28 of Gacy's victims have been conclusively identified. Of these, the youngest were Samuel Stapleton and Michael Marino, both 14. The eldest were Francis Alexander and Russell Nelson, both 21. Five victims have never been identified. The first victims to be identified were John Butkovich, John Syke, and Gregory Godzik. Dental records confirmed their identities on December 29, 1978. 
The 33rd victim linked to Gacy, James Mazzara, was identified the following day. The 23rd victim exhumed from Gacy's property was identified as Rick Johnston on January 1, 1979. Four further victims were identified on January 6, 1979. Body 18 was identified as Michael Bonin and body 25 as Robert Gilroy. The first victim exhumed from the crawl space was identified as John Prestige, and the victim labeled body 16 as Russell Nelson. A fishing license issued to Bonin, er, a fishing license issued to Bonin had been found in Gacy's home. Three days later, the victim recovered from the Des Plaines River on June 30, 1978, was identified as Timothy O'Rourke. On January 27th, dental charts were used to identify body 20 as John Mowry. Two days later, body 8 was identified as Matthew Bowman. Two months later, on March 17, 1979, the 22nd victim recovered from Gacy's property was identified using dental records as William Carroll. The following month, the, identi the identity of the seventh victim was confirmed using x-ray records as Randall Reffitt. And on May 21st, a dental record confirmed that body 27 was William Kindred. On September 11th, 1979, bodies 11 and 12 were identified as Robert Winch and Tommy Bowling, respectively. Winch was identified via x-ray records of a distinctive healing bone fracture, a di distinctive brown tiger's eye metal buckle with black striping belonging to Winch was also found alongside his body. Using dental records, the sixth victim exhumed from Gacy's property was identified on November 14, 1979, as Samuel Stapleton. On November 16th, body 17 was identified as David Talsma, using radiology images of a healed fracture on the left scapula. Two days later, the final victim recovered from Gacy's property, body 29, was identified as Daryl Sampson. On March 29, 1980, bodies 14 and 15 were identified using dental records and radiology images as those of Michael Marino and Kenneth Parker. Their identities were confirmed too late to include among the victims identified before Gacy's trial. In May 1986, the ninth victim exhumed from Gacy's property was identified as Timothy Jack McCoy, Gacy's first, first victim. Dental records and a distinctive yellow belt buckle engraved with a Ford Model A car assisted with his identification. After this, it seemed like the remaining victims would never be named. But then, in October 2011, Cook County Sheriff Thomas Dart announced that investigators, having obtained full DNA profiles from each of the unidentified victims, were to renew their efforts to identify them. At a press conference held to announce this, Sheriff Dart started, uh, stated investigators are actively seeking DNA samples from individuals across the United States relating to any male missing between 1970 and 1979. Results of tests conducted thus far have confirmed the identification of three victims, ruled out the possibility of numerous other missing youths as being victims of Gacy, and solved four unrelated cold cases dating between 1972 and 1979. In November 2011, the victim previously known as Body 19 was identified through DNA testing as William Bundy. Shortly after Gacy's arrest, Bundy's family had contacted his dentist in the hope of submitting his dental records for comparison with the unidentified bodies, but the records had been destroyed after his dentist had retired. In July 2017, 16-year-old James Hakenson, previously known as Body 24, was also identified as a victim using DNA testing. The most recent victim to be identified is 21-year-old Francis Wayne Alexander, previously known as Body 5. Alexander was identified via forensic genealogy in October 2021. He had not been reported missing by his family, who believed he had re relocated from Chicago to California shortly after his final contact with his mother in November 1976. It's been decades since Gacy's capture, yet the investigation into his remaining unidentified victims is ongoing. Utilizing the latest technologies, including genealogy, investigators continue to work tirelessly to give a name to those who lost their lives at the hand of John Wayne Gacy. If you believe that a male relative of yours who went missing may have been a victim of Gacy's, you can visit cookcountysheriffs.org. I'll leave a link in the show notes as well. In conclusion, John Wayne Gacy was a deeply disturbed individual whose crimes were fueled by his own inner demons. His homophobia and bigotry added an extra layer of ugliness to his already horrific actions. It's hard to imagine the pain and suffering that he inflicted on his victims and their families. 
While it's important to understand the psychological factors that may have contributed to Gacy's crimes, it's equally important to remember the innocent lives that were lost. Let's not forget about the still unidentified victims and continue to support ongoing efforts to bring closure to their families. As I wrap up such a rough episode, I wanted to remind listeners that if you or anyone you know is struggling with trauma related to sexual assault or abuse, please seek help from a qualified mental health professional. There are many resources available to those in need, including hotlines and support groups. And I highly recommend checking out my best friend's podcast, Trauma Chats with Mackenzie May. She offers a safe space for survivors of sexual assault to find healing. Remember, you are not alone, and there's always help available for those who need it. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we explored the dark and disturbing world of John Wayne Gacy. Stay safe and stay curious. Good night.